This is Perspectives, the show where a conversation about our differences will often show us how much we have in common. I'm Condis Presley. On the show today, we have a compelling look at the biases against Muslim women of color in the United States. Unlike France, Belgium, Denmark, Austria, China, and several other nations, the United States does not legally ban Muslim women from wearing a hijab or a niqab, a veil that is worn along with the headscarf, leaving only a woman's eyes exposed. Still, such visibly Muslim women in America routinely encounter disapproval, if not downright hostility in public, and often deal with discrimination at work. In Unruly Women, Race, neo-colonialism, and the hijab, Balgany Sheth digs deeper into the widespread animosity towards Muslim women in America, who, as a commitment to modesty and a sign of their religious faith, choose to cover their heads. Sheth is a professor of women's gender and sexuality studies in Atlanta at Emory University. Uh, this is not her first book. She's also the author of Toward a Political Philosophy of Race, and she's the co-editor of Race liberalism, and economics. For the past 15 years, Sheth has served as the co-organizer of the California Roundtable on the Philosophy of Race, founded as a forum to talk about philosophy, race, and those related themes. But for the past year, she has made her home in the ATL, and she has finished this book while teaching over at Emory. And welcome to Perspectives. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Now, so tell us why you wrote this book. Well, I wrote it because I think that there is this kind of um, widespread story that Americans like to tell ourselves about how we're the site of religious freedom and how we really work really hard to kind of um, dispel discrimination. And I think those of us in Atlanta absolutely know that that's not true, just given the long history of, of Atlanta, but also our deep awareness of the history of race relations. Um, and I was really intrigued by the way in which after 9-11, Muslim women were kind of taken to be not in their right minds or guilty of false consciousness or oppressed or coerced because they wore the veil. Um, and we don't, as you pointed out, we don't actually, we don't regulate, we don't ban Muslim women who wear the veil, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they don't also face animosity and hostility and frankly, you know, a much more subtle discrimination, but it's there, um, usually in institutional contexts like courts and um, places of work. So police, you know, women on police forces, women in hospitals, women in prisons. Um, and so I was really interested in how we have this two-tiered, story. So one is that um, as women, we are free, uh, regardless of what we like to do. Um, and we, we know that's not necessarily the case, but also that somehow discrimination doesn't happen unless you can see it. And so my book was really an attempt to kind of delve into the quiet, subtle ways in which Muslim women um, were discriminated against. But I will say that even though I am choosing to focus on Muslim women, this is really in some sense, I'm using this particular group as an example of all the ways in which when we have controversial politics, women's bodies end up being the site of those antagonisms. So I think it applies to many other groups of women, especially women of color. So is that a part of the backstory behind why you titled the book Unruly Women? Yeah, 
exactly. Because I think that um, there's also an expectation of what good women and professional women and autonomous, independent women look like. And if women look differently from that, then they're thought to be defiant and in your face about, um, about their presentations. So let's do a little education here for the listeners and just tell us about the hijab, the najab, and the way Muslim women dress in public in our community, because people might be uncomfortable because they don't know why or understand. Well, I have to say, I don't necessarily have a one-size-fits-all answer because I think Muslim women wear the hijab or the niqab or other variants of the veil for all kinds of reasons. And in fact, there's um, there are a number of books out there that actually interview Muslim women of many backgrounds. And one of the things that you notice is that every single woman has a slightly different reason, maybe because of um, reasons of faith. It may be because of, frankly, certain kinds of strategic uh, advantages. In Canada, there a couple of sociologists conducted interviews with Muslim women in Toronto and in Montreal. And one of the things that we noticed was that this, that often young women or um, professional women who wanted to be out in the workforce wore the hijab because it enabled a larger sense of trust among their own family members so that they could actually navigate the world outside their communities with ease. Um, others, especially after 9-11, um, made the very kind of thoughtful and deliberate decision to wear the hijab of various forms as a sign of political resistance to Islamophobia and the kind of attacks and hostility that um, their community was facing, both through state violence, as well as through kind of everyday encounters with non-Muslims. Everybody has some, you know, a slightly different reason to do the thing that they do. And, you know, it's a, it's a real sign of diversity, I think. I mean, that we can't really just reduce it all to one reason. And yet you walk around and you'll walk past a nun and she's in her habit. You'll walk past, you know, as you said, uh, an Orthodox Jewish woman who may wear a wig or a headscarf, and folks are like, yeah, uh -huh. but you see a woman wearing a veil, and you're like, oh, why, where does that discomfort come from? Boy, I think there's a lot of different sources. I mean, unfortunately, we have a history of Islamophobia that was really refreshed after the, the September 11 attacks um, in New York City, and I think that fear was um, intensified and used as a way to scapegoat um, Muslims. And I think culturally then it became a much more widespread and accepted practice to really harass um, Muslims. And I think at the same time in 2003, President Bush, um, the, the, our president at the time, um, wanted to invade Afghanistan, which of which the first anniversary of the withdrawal of our troops is just um, passed. And I and his wife, the first lady, Laura Bush, made a radio address around the time that her husband wanted to in invade Afghanistan, President Bush. And she made the case that Afghan women needed to be liberated and that it was our duty to go in and invade in order to try to liberate them. And it was a fairly flimsy excuse for invading Afghanistan. Um, and so, you know, I think that that also kind of intensified this sense that um, Muslims either needed to be saved or were untrustworthy. And so when we see Muslim women walk around wearing veils, there is a sense of, oh, well, that's really backwards. Like as a country, we, we're really um, opposed to that kind of um, veiling or, you know, practice of clothing. And also, um, you know, 
because it's associated with Islam and we have a very kind of long-standing open uh, hostility to Islam, even if we don't really know what it is. We just know that we don't like Islam. And so I think that's where a lot of the animosity comes from. I'm not sure that there are really kind of good and profound reasons for it because we have religious fundamentalists in every religion. So I'm not sure that Islam alone is full of religious fundamentalists in a way that Christians, Christianity isn't, or Hinduism isn't, or even Buddhism isn't, as we see with Myanmar and the Rohingya refugees who were trying to escape Myanmar because of persecution by zealots, zealot, Buddhist zealots. I don't even know if that's a term, but you know, it's equivalent. So you would say that there's a role that ethnicity and race and a Muslim woman's immigration status plays in this perception that non-Muslim people have of the Muslim faith and the Muslim community. I do think so. And I think there's also a sense of the fear of the unknown. So that when you see folks who appear to be foreign, yeah, there is a sense rather than kind of being open and curious, there is a concern and fear for safety. And so I think people really turn away. In the book, you talk about the veil, the hijab. Why have progressives, feminists, and the liberal cultural political regime failed to support the women who wear the veil? Well, I think... That's a really good question. I think part of the reason is because even progressives have a very definite sense of what a liberated woman looks like. And in part, that's because of the set of battles that have really been popularized in American feminist history. They may not be all the correct battles, but things like the battle to have clothing that is extremely liberating. So for example, the bloomers, I don't know if you remember those, but you know, 1920s, which were um, taken up and adapted by suffragettes because uh, it was a kind of political statement. Clothing has always been a political statement. And it was also thought to be much more comfortable to ride bicycles. And so there was a sense of like wearing clothing that allows you to be much more free and then the bikini. And so there's this um, almost a kind of sub-theme of American feminist history. It's not necessarily the only one, but this sense that, um, you know, wearing less or wearing, um, you know, things that don't necessarily require covering up is much more feminist. And so I think that that actually is a counterpart, is consistent with viewing the the hijab and the niqab suspiciously, the sense that no one would actually want to voluntarily wear these things. And so I think progressives and feminists also have to really think twice about our own um, reluctances and our own assumptions when we encounter people who look very different, because we still do have a set image of what somebody who is autonomous should look like in the public space. And that doesn't necessarily mean that someone who looks differently isn't autonomous, but I think we project that impression upon them. Is being visibly Muslim a safety issue for that woman? Oh yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Um, I think it's a safety issue all over the country. Um, You know, it depends upon obviously where you are, but yes, I think, you know, in fact, I begin my book with a story of a young woman who was a Somali immigrant um, Shukri Ali, who actually had, was mentally ill and she was walking down the street with, um, with a small weapon 
a knife, which she had not intended, as far as we know, to use on anybody. But her family was really concerned about her mental health. And so when the police were called, they ended up shooting her. And her family's convinced that had she not been wearing the hijab, she might have been treated a little differently. Now, mind you, this was before um, the spate of police brutality, which has really been in the news over the last six or seven years. So it's hard to tell, but that's one example. In places like Minnesota and um, New York and San Francisco, um, women who wear the veil are often subject to just having their veils pulled off uh, out of spite or out of some kind of just antagonistic impulse. So yeah, they are really often in danger. But I think, again, it depends on where they're walking and, and what kind of you know context they find themselves in. So during the uh, the women's liberation movement, you've talked about, you know, back in the 20s with women being wanting to be more active. So you wanted to wear bloomers so that you could ride a bicycle. How is it that all of that appears to be a woman being liberated to be more herself and yet to see a Muslim woman wearing a, a hijab, uh, wearing the veil, has somehow been labeled as a political statement. These are the results of national politics and foreign policy, which influence domestic policy as well. Um, you know, I think that when we decide that women in other parts of the world are backwards or primitive, which frankly is a symptom of colonialism, right, which has often been the open overt excuse to invade other countries and not just in this moment, but certainly British colonialism, French and Dutch and Portuguese colonialism, there was this sense that the West was superior to the East or to Africa or, you know, to the Middle East. And so I think that that's actually also a holdover. It's one of the, it's one of the terms in my title, neocolonialism, because I think while the United States is not been engaged in colonialism in Asia or M the Middle East in conventional terms. They haven't held colonies there per se. Um, there is certainly a holdover of that kind of colonial attitude that I think has migrated over to North America, this sense that the West is superior in norms and practices. And so that, uh, you know, that there is an obligation to teach Muslim women or women who appear different and often darker women, how to behave properly. And again, this is not just a phenomenon that's restricted to women who wear the veil. One of the comparisons that I draw out of my book is the, the need to correct and manage African-American women and their hair and natural hair, braids, locks, um, this has been a long-standing issue, and frankly, a long-standing issue of discrimination, which I think parallels the issue of Muslim women being discriminated against. The sense that somehow wearing natural hair in your place of work is unprofessional, or wearing locks or rows are unprofessional. And so, as we know, there is this kind of this new Crown Act, right, um, which is an attempt to kind of beat back that kind of employment discrimination. But what's fascinating is it's actually been the U.S. military that has been the first U.S. institution to really pull back um, and to, to push back against this kind of discrimination, because I think they realize that they are also losing troops if they have these kinds of strictures. And so they have been the first ones over the last four or five years to no longer have those restrictions on natural hair. But I think that is the parallel between the two, that 
you know, this sense of superiority among, let's face it, white women, European women, or those who identify <laughs> with white or European women, you know, in assuming that somehow their way, their practices are much more progressive and feminist and autonomous than those of Muslim women or Muslim women of color or African-American women. So that is a longstanding attitude that I think we really have to work hard to kind of beat back. What is your take on uh, the U.S. Supreme Court and the court's role in expanding religious rights, but not when it comes to the Muslim community? Is it because the United States is a, you know, a Christian nation founded on Judeo-Christian values and not open to the melting pot that the United States of America has grown to be of people of, of different ethnicities, of different faiths, and more. You know, the irony of this, and I, I think that may, that's very much, I think, um, appearing to be the case this year, um, but the irony is that back in 2016, the Supreme Court actually ruled in favor of a young hijabi. Um, in a case that was that went all the way up to the Supreme Court, it was called uh, EEOC Equal Employment Opportunity Commission versus Abercrombie and Fitch, and the EEOC is an outgrowth of the Civil Rights Act, 1965 um, Civil Rights Act, which it was a uh, commission that was formed to vet cases of discrimination because there were so many that started to be launched after the Civil Rights Act was passed. And so when they file a suit on behalf of someone, it means they think there are grounds there. And so that case went up through the courts or through the various courts and was um, decided in favor of Samantha Alalf. And this was a, a young woman who was um, applying for a job at Abercrombie & Fitch, the clothing retailer, and she wore a headscarf. And she, and she passed, she took all kinds of tests and she passed the interview with flying colors. And at the end of it, she asked if wearing her hijab was going to be a problem. And the person who was interviewing her said that she didn't know, but she would check. And sure enough, um, she came back and, and said, and they didn't fire, uh, sorry, they didn't hire her. Even though Samantha Alauf had pointed out that she was very flexible in terms of how to wear the hijab so that it would conform to the clothing store's dress codes. And the court, and this was Anthony Scalia, the court ruled in Alaf's favor, and Anthony Scalia pointed out, you know, that that the store had engaged in outright religious discrimination, no ifs, ands, or buts. It was kind of fascinating. This was a, a nat made national headlines. And I, you know, I actually devote a chapter to, in my book to, to this case because I think that there's a lot more going on there than we can see. But what was also interesting is that Scalia's kind of part of, well, has passed away. But the new court, I think, shared a lot of his views on religious discrimination, especially Clarence Thomas. And I'm not sure if much accommodation they're going to make for Muslims at this point, although it certainly seems that they are at least openly espousing a commitment to religious right. So we'll see what happens here. I mean, I, I suspect that a lot of decisions will be made in conformity with how our future presidential politics go, I'm sad to say. And so I do think that there is a sense of Christianity, again, being superior to Islam, ironically, <laughs> given how many similarities there are between various tenets of the new faith, uh, the two faiths, the, the two religions. 
For whom did you write Unruly Women? Who do you want to read this book? Typically don't like to direct my writing to a narrow audience. I, I like to be able to write on such a level that um, all kinds of folks can read it. And so my hope is that folks who are generally interested in American culture, who are somewhat suspicious of the stories of American religious freedom, but also suspicious of this idea that somehow the US is stands above discrimination or stands above other kinds of animosity towards other groups. I hope that they'll read it and they'll get to see the multiple ways in which both Muslim women, but also Muslim women of color and African-American Muslim women, um, and, and women who engage in practices that are unfamiliar are often then subject to a lot of harassment. Um, and that I think gives me, will give me and I hope them hope that if there are enough people who are interested in reading a book like this, that we can actually, the next time we see someone who is Muslim, encounter and engage them with an air of pleasantness and friendliness and curiosity rather than hostility. And the takeaway that you have for your readers is what? That we need to be, we need to be aware of how we're engaging in or encountering people who are really unfamiliar to us, because that's part, I think, of the deep-seated problem that we're facing nationally and internationally today, that we've really turned into a very kind of hawkish hostile site rather than one of openness and curiosity. I love how you are making your work to educate, enlighten, uh, and inform a community that sometimes prides itself on all the things that we don't know, as opposed to the things that we can know. Not necessarily that we should know, but just being openly curious about people of other cultures. I hope so. I hope so. That's really what I would like, um, because I think that is, we can't, we can't always be on the right side of the issue. We need to kind of think and learn and often just kind of fumble our way through things. And so it feels much more forgiving for everyone involved if we can do it with a sense of open curiosity and just gentleness, being ready to kind of apologize if one is mis misstepped, but also just being ready to kind of forgive and be gracious. The book is Unruly Women, Race, Neocolonialism, and the Hijab, and the author is Emory University's Valgany Sheff. She is professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Emory University. In addition to Unruly Women, she's also the author of Toward a Political Philosophy of Race. She's also the co-editor of Race, Liberalism, and Economics. Again, she's a former columnist for Salon.com. There she wrote about race, national security, and politics. She's also written for public news outlets, including Alternet and Common Dreams. And for the last decade or so, she served as the co-organizer of the California Roundtable on Philosophy and Race. That was founded as a forum on philosophy, race, and related themes. Thanks. It was such a pleasure to be here. I hope you've enjoyed our conversation. The book is available wherever you get your books. And I want you to stay with us because coming up next, we're going to talk with the legendary Tony Award-winning actress and singer, Melba Moore. I'll tell you why she was in Atlanta this weekend. This is Perspectives on News 95.5 WSB. 
Perspectives is a community and public affairs program produced with you in mind. If there's a guest or an issue you'd like to hear me explore, I hope you'd let me know. The easiest way to connect with me is on social media. Just slip me a DM or send me a message. Search Condes Presley on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And yeah, I know you're asking, how do you spell Condes? C-O-N-D-A-C-E. And Presley has two S's. That's P-R-E-S-S-L-E-Y. Friends, I appreciate your listening. Be sure to listen again next week at the same time as we explore new perspectives. So is Church's Seafood. With a flavorful fish sandwich or classic shrimp basket. Each starting at just $3.99.